most important things is in content creation to understand what you as a person are all about. You want to be astonished by something. You want to find new ways of thinking about stuff, of solving problems. There's something there. That there's more than just casual entertainment there. There's a real industry. If I put in the work and if I approach it with the correct mindset, then success will come to me. Hello and welcome to Humans and Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 59 with Julian Knob. Julian is a really good friend of mine. He was the inspiration behind the entire Humans and Magic project. In fact, I dedicated both of my books to him. He is a German content creator, a lover of the legacy format, and just an all-around happy-go-lucky kind of guy. Usually what happens in the Humans and Magic episodes is that I try to talk about the guests' backstories and basically their entire life journey from start to finish. Well, I already did that with Julian way back in at the beginning of Humans and Magic in episode two. This time I thought I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to make this interview a bit more structured. So we broke this talk down into two parts, and it fits in with what Julian's actually all about. Part one is really about esports as an industry. Julian's one of the biggest proponents of esports, not just magic, but just the entire industry. And he has a lot of interesting views and comments about where it's going. Part two is a follow-up continuation of the esports topic because it goes into a project that Julian has been working on for years and has repeated quite successfully. And that is something called the Legacy Premier League. The Legacy Premier League is one of the best Magic the Gathering leagues around. And in this part too, I asked Julian about everything that goes into it. The conceptualization, the vision, the production, logistics. If you're interested in esports production of any kind, this is basically a master class, a very detailed deep dive into everything. I think there'll be something here for you. I have a lot of admiration for the Legacy Premier League and how he's using his spare time to create something that ultimately aligns with his career interests. Because I know Julian pretty well by now, and I know that he's been trying to get into the esports industry full-time. In a lot of ways, this, is, this Legacy Premier League is the perfect audition for that. And I'm really happy to see that he is somebody who isn't just saying, okay, I want to get into an industry. He's actually getting really hands-on and trying to make it happen in his spare time. So kudos to that. A few quick things before heading into the interview. Humans of Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to get all your magic cards, whether it's Oko or anything else that is currently dominating Format X. Channel Fireball also has some wicked sales and newsletters, so make sure you subscribe to those, and you can do all of that from the website. Not to mention it's got a ton of strategy articles to take your game to the next level no matter what format you're playing. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live was recently used to power the Mythic Championship 6, and if you're streaming magic of any kind, we've got you covered. Cardboard Live has solutions for tabletop, 
It has a great experience for arena streamers, Magic Online streamers. If you want to get connected to Cardboard Live, just reach out to james at cardboard.live and we'll hook you up. Last but not least, I have to give a shout out to the awesome music that is being used in the Humans of Magic podcast. The music is by Kupla Sound. Give them a follow at K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. That's Kupla Sound. Kupla is an amazing Finnish musician who happens to be a lover of magic as well. We actually met while I was visiting London and we actually played a few games together. So Kupla's got an amazing back catalog of music to relax to, to do anything to really. Definitely check him out at Kupla Sound. I also want to let you know that the Humans of Magic book is out. It has 12 of the best interviews that I've conducted for this podcast in text format. So if you enjoy reading the interviews and revisiting interviews with key players like Jerry Thompson and Emma Handy and John Finko, some of the greats of magic, honestly, then I think you will really enjoy this book. I've also written some new introductions and commissioned some illustrations just for the book. Quite frankly, I put a lot of my blood, sweat, and tears into it, and I would super appreciate it if you would consider picking up a copy. It's on Amazon, and you can pick up a copy for either paperback or Kindle. Every once in a while, I get questions about how to support the Humans of Magic project. The best way to support me, if you want to continue listening to the podcast, you want to help cover for some of the costs, is basically pick up the book. Tell your friends about it. Tell them how you enjoyed it and uh, maybe even pass a few copies along. To me, that is really the best way to support the project. And hey, I'm not going to lie. I'm really proud of the work that I put into the book. And I think that if you take the chance to pick up a copy, you will enjoy it. Okay, so let's get right into the interview now with Julian Knob. Today on Humans and Magic, I have with me one of my best friends in magic, someone who is actually with me right now physically. We don't usually do these recordings live or face-to-face, but I'm really happy to be talking with my dear friend, Julian Knob. Julian, how's it going? Hey, James. I'm having a great time. I'm here in Beijing with you. Spent a really great week in China, and now we're here recording one of my favorite podcast episodes. So explain to the listeners why you're here in Beijing, other than to visit me, of course. Oh, that's the main reason, right? I just yeah. love you so much. Uh, I was invited here to come to play in the Beijing All of Event, which is one of the most profitable and coolest magic events on the entire planet. I've been here for the same event last year, and now we're running it back this year and just having a blast. Excellent. So it sounds like you've been... This is your second time in Beijing, right? You came last year, as I recall. We did the Great Wall trip tour together. And uh, this time it's a little bit different for you in terms of what you've been doing outside of magic, but hopefully you're having fun. Yeah, this time I've been doing a lot of exploration on my own, which I think is also something really great when you when you get to explore a city. Because last year, right, we had an amazing time. You showed us a lot of places. But when you're on your own, you discover a city in different ways and have other experiences and I loved it. As yes. Well. Cool. 
So I guess we should probably properly introduce you. I would just introduce you as Julian. You know, you're a obviously a very competitive magic player. You are a podcaster of a very successful magic podcast, Everyday Eternal. And you are also a streamer, It's Julian, twitch.tv slash It's Julian. And you wear many different hats. I just want to make sure that I haven't missed something. Like, what, what would be the best way for you to introduce what you do in the magic space? Uh, these days, I would say I'm probably categorized as a content creator in many different ways. Like you mentioned, the podcast, the streaming. Uh, I write articles every now and then. And another big thing that I'm doing is tournament organizing online, where I'm running a couple of community leagues that we're going to talk about later on, I guess. And yeah, I think that's that's just... I love producing content. I love creating something, putting it out there, showing it to people. And if I can make them happy that way, I know that I'm doing good work. And that's great. I guess that would dis describe me the best. Yeah, I would say that your fans or people who read or listen or watch your content, they're really tuned into what you do and they're really big fans. Like I see a lot of good reactions on the internet. So somehow you've been able to pull them in and magnetize them with what you're what you're doing. I mean, what's what's your secret there? I mean, you seem like a personable person, obviously, but in, in the content world, like how do you how do you build that loyal following, which I'm seeing with your fans? Um, I think one of the most important things is in content creation to understand what you as a person are all about, because a lot of people, I think they get somewhat insecure, at least when they start off, right? And for me, it, my biggest thing has always been that the guy you see on screen or here on the podcast is the same guy you meet in person. I want to be genuine, I want to be authentic, and I don't want to put on a show. You can do that, I think. There's people who basically make it their thing that they're always grumpy or always salty or anything like that. And I don't think they're like that in real life. And I'm not like saying that's bad. If you, if you can do that, there's an audience for that. But for me, it's really just like, I want to enjoy myself. I want to be myself. And I guess that's what a lot of people appreciate about that. So you're basically the Julian that people see in the content is the same Julian. Like it's not a different persona then. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've changed over times as a person as well, so my content has changed over times. So I'm pretty sure like when I started creating content in 2013, I was overall a more insecure person, not only with regards to magic, but like to life in general, but that's six years. And as that has changed, I have changed, but I hope that people would say, and I think that's the case, that my content has always stayed true to who I am. Excellent. And I know that you are not only a content creator, but you have had some pretty notable finishes in the Magic the Gathering world. So what are some of the achievements, you know, people that may not be so familiar with what you do, what are some of your proudest achievements in Magic? Uh, so competitively to this day, I would still say my first really big achievement is still my proudest and biggest one. That was when I won Bazaar of Moxen, which is or at least was at the time the biggest European tournament series for Eternal Magic. That was 2013 in Paris, where I won the 700 people legacy main event against Chaha Shenha in the finals, who was the reigning world champion at the time. So to me, it really was like, like an anime fantasy story where you go there, you never really achieved anything outside of your LGS, but you knew you were good, but you didn't know you were like capable of actually doing that. And then you keep going, keep going, keep going. 
all the way to the finals, and then you're up against a guy whom you've never seen before in the legacy scene, and your friends tell you, this guy's actually the world champion. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's what? And Shahar is a very notable player, yes. Yeah, to, like, I think he's the only back-to-back world champion. And I ended up winning that. Like, I had a very favorable matchup in the finals against Stephen Texas. And yet to this day, that's my proudest achievements. There's other stuff that I care about a lot. Um, like, my success on, they call it card market series now. You guys might know it by MKM series. And I still have, like, the record number of top eights. And I think also wins which eventually somebody will overcome, right? Because I don't really play on it anymore. But I, I guess I got to enjoy it while it lasts. That's right. So you, for a while, you were grinding the card market series or previously known as MKM. Yeah, I, I started grinding it right away because I was so impressed. Or like I was so desperate to, to have a competitive outlet. The guys in, in the US, they have the SG series and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in Europe, we've always had these one-off events like Winogadon or... I guess, yeah, Bazaar of Moxen. But once we had the series, that was like quite something else. And we, we hit that really hard. And yeah, I had a lot of high profile finishes, sometimes even like three top eights in a row or something. I don't want to like sound too full of myself, but I really enjoyed that things worked out. Like I put in a lot of work during those years from 2015 to 2018, pretty much. And it really paid off. And yeah, that, that felt good. I don't. don't don't do it really that much anymore. I only play like once a year now, but that's more for, for the community aspect because it's just like when, when there's a tournament in Germany and you know there's not many magic tournaments in Germany, you just got to be there. And from your perspective, what makes you so attracted to eternal formats like the legacy format? So when I got into competitive magic, it was actually through Extended, which is a sure. format that previously existed. That before modern, right? There was extended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think extended pretty much ended around 2000. Well, officially it ended much later, but I, I got into it in 2005 and I played Enchantress. And I thought there was no rotation. But apparently there was rotation, so I couldn't play Enchantress anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to MTG Salvation at the time and they had a sub forum for Legacy. And apparently you could still play Enchantress. So I was like, okay, well, I guess now I'm a Legacy player. That and was your favorite deck at the time, right? Yeah, and you know why? Because when I started playing in 1998 in school, like I, I had no idea, like we didn't even have internet. It was like in Germany, it was like starting up that people would start having internet. But I didn't know about formats. I didn't know anything. I just saw this Enchantress deck that somebody played at my school and I was fascinated by it, like absolutely captivated. And yeah, that's when I, when I got into competitive matching in 2005. That's the first thing that drew me into Like I needed to play Enchantress and... That's, yeah, going back to your question, but what is it about Legacy that I like so much? Of course, it's a big thing that it doesn't rotate, right? I often talk about how for people who don't really have a lot of time to keep up with like weekly changes, that's a big thing. You can walk away from Legacy for a while, come back, and there's not going to be too many changes unless they give us another M20 or something. <laughs> but, or Modern Horizons. Yeah, that, that was another big one, right? Um, but I think... Gameplay-wise, uh, something I really enjoy about Legacy is even though the format is incredibly powerful, right? We, we have these these absolutely amazing spells. You can win on the first turn if you want to. And the fact that winning on the first turn is usually not a winning strategy in Legacy, that's fascinating, right? That tells you a lot about like how Legacy still keeps itself in check. And that's, of course, Farcifer and a couple of other uh, spells that allow you to do that. And to me, it's fascinating to... to be involved with so powerful cards 
and yet people would cast Knight of the Reliquary or something yeah. and make it work. Yeah. And that's always like my golden rule. Legacy is good when you cast Knight and, and it's not something you should be ashamed of. Yeah. Maybe a similar analogy is now happening in modern where Force of Negation is a card and it has allowed the format to slow down and people to actually play Magic beyond the first few turns, right? Yeah, so. that's such an important printing, right? I, I would say so. I, I wouldn't even mind if they printed more of those cards. Um, it's probably like a different topic, but I think that it definitely needs some kind of police deck to keep the broken stuff in check so we don't see cards like Oath of Nyssa Band and well, Pioneer now, which would have the same issues if they didn't right introduce something like that and so you're just very passionate about legacy as a whole incredibly passionate yeah it's it's for the last 14 years it's been my biggest hobby like magic as a whole of course but 90 percent has been legacy and i really really care a lot about it although you do dabble in the other formats too right yeah yeah um <laughs> every now and then I, I would play vintage i think i actually won some vintage tournaments not the big ones but some and I've played a lot of modern. Uh, there, there have been years where modern was my most successful format. I even played uh, standard every now and then, even though there's usually like a 10-year uh, gap between those. <laughs> <laughs> I love cube. I love cube more than anything. When when cube became big, like I would even play it over over legacy at times just because I loved it so much. But at a certain point, you you know it's about time, right? We can only do so many things. You can only really care about so many formats. Yeah. So we have a probably a couple of listeners who know your content and know you from what you do in the field of legacy and other formats. But can you also share something that people may not know about you? Yeah, so if you really only know me for my magic content, you'd be surprised that I'm actually a safari salesman. <laughs> to, there you to go. put it in, in uh, terms that are understandable. It's a little bit more complicated than that. So it's basically a couple of friends and I, we are managing a beach resort in Kenya on the Indian Ocean. And a big part of that is selling safaris, uh, telling people about the wonders of safaris. And yeah, that that's just, to me, that's another really big passion that I eventually developed once I realized what an amazing product Safari was. Because to be totally honest, when I got into this job, I didn't really care much for Safari. Like it was like, yeah, I know it exists. But once you go on one and you experience it and you see like what's possible, it's just amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I, I, for years, I, I was like, okay, I want to get some magic tournament into Kenya, maybe into Nairobi. And then people actually told me, you know what, there's actually FNM in Nairobi. And I'm like, oh, shit. So <laughs> there goes my dream. It's already accomplished. So now so, I want to play in it, I guess. So just describe to people, like, what, what is it? What is a safari like? I've never been to one. Yeah, so the, the big thing about safari is um, you get much closer to the animals than you would actually believe. Like, people think, oh, you can see an elephant from afar. No, the elephant will actually cross but preferably behind your car, because if it's in front of your car, you're always in trouble. Yeah. And you get really close to these animals, and most people probably have been to zoos, and it's nothing like a zoo. Like, the animals in the zoo, they're basically used to just hanging around, not doing much, but the animals in the wild, that's entirely different. You see you see lions hunting zebras, you see a hyena running around with, well, actually a zebra again, <laughs> poor zebras. And also the, the nature is entirely different. You you see, I remember we were going on a, on a volcano and, and seeing that kind of stuff. Or when you stay in your safari camp and your safari camp is literally a tent in the wild without any fences, there's a water hole and at night, the hippos come out, and the hippos would, would be like make these grunting noises, and and you'd be in your tent, and you know, very likely nothing's gonna happen to yeah, you. <laughs> but some some something's out there, yeah. Yeah, it, it's absolutely 
indescribable, which probably would be bad for my job if I couldn't describe it very well. I usually can. But the, the experience is such one of a lifetime thing. And we, we call it the Bacillus Africanus, which is like not an actual disease. It's just once you've been to Africa once, you want to go back all the time. And there's so many people, they actually go on safari like every year. I have many clients, they literally go every year. Some of them go every other year. And the experience is absolutely incomparable to anything else. So they feel this sort of impulsive feeling to want to go back and revisit and to relive that experience. Yeah, yeah. Because the the different parks that you can go to, they're also like incredibly different. You go to Amboseli, for example, in Kenya, you've got this amazing view of Mount Kilimanjaro. For those of you who don't know, that's the highest mountain in Africa and also the highest freestanding mountain in the world. So you have this absolutely level terror. There's like nothing. And then Kilimanjaro rises almost 6,000 meters. And if you see that in the morning as you open your tent and you walk outside and there's like, there's a famous picture where there's um, a herd of elephants crossing next to the mountain and the guy who took that picture probably made a ton of money. But yeah. if, you, if you see something like that in real life uh, or you see another big thing was when you see elephants and they, they go through the marshlands into the swamps and literally only like their trunk and some part of the head would like show out. And there's, there's actually like a baby elephant running next to them. And he's barely like breathing anymore. Yeah. You don't see that in Zeus. And you can get so incredibly close. Like I've been something like three meters next to a lion. And for those who don't know. And that's lions, okay? Yeah, that's okay. Lions just chill. Like lions don't Really? Do You're still alive. So obviously it was okay, but you didn't feel any danger. No, not at all. I mean, we have really good safari guides and that... Their eyes are crazy. Like, I, I remember going on safari when the sun was already almost down, which technically wasn't legal, but I guess you could still see some, some of the sun. And they would go like, over there, over there. And it's like 50 meters away. And you could see like one ear of a lion. And the just <laughs> saw, like, I thought, was this, is this staged or something? No, yeah. he actually saw that. And yeah, the, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't feel. Like, the only animal that people are actually scared of in Kenya, or like big time scared of, is the hippo. Because, really? yeah, the hippo okay. is the most dangerous animal in all of Africa. That's not a mosquito. <laughs> because, the, you know, the mosquitoes, like if you catch malaria, which is like not likely, but it can happen. Um, it's not mosquitoes that kills you. So sometimes people don't count it. So the hippo is definitely the most. What is it about the hippos? Is it because they kick you or they try to run run you over? Yeah, they can. They usually like either run you over or like basically smash you. Or if you see the mouth, they, they can actually probably like cut you in half. And they care very much about their younglings. So if they have like a baby around and you're uh, anywhere close to them. Fiercely protective. Yeah, they, they will charge at you like nothing else. And they're actually pretty fast. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea. So I guess I'll just have to avoid the hippos when I... Avoid when the I, hippos. Avoid the lonely buffaloes. Like buffaloes in a herd, they, they feel safe. But a lonely buffalo will feel scared and might charge at you as well. Okay. That's great. So public service announcement. If you ever want to go on a safari, please reach out to Julian on Twitter or wherever he can be found. I actually sent some people that knew me through Magic on Safaris. Excellent. They have reached out to me and, and we made something work. That is awesome. All right, so Julian, today we're going to talk about a couple of things. And really, it's a topic that you're personally very passionate about. And that's why I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. Really, we want to talk about esports industry, you know, as a in general, but also as it relates to Magic the Gathering, the game that we all love. Uh, as everybody knows, Magic is becoming more and more like an eSport every day. It, it is already an eSport. Uh, there's more and more arena coverage and Mythic Championships and all that stuff is already in the pipeline. So really want to talk to you about eSports and really get a sense for you know your deep knowledge of the industry as well. Because uh, 
you know, you know a lot. And, you know, we've had some private conversations and I've gone to absorb a little bit. But, you know, maybe just let's just start off with something really simple. So maybe tell me about your first exposure or first forays into esports. You know, it can be as a player. It can be as a viewer. It can be some other role. Like what was your first exposure into quote unquote esports and what really triggered that initial interest? Mm, so I would say my very first actual exposure happened when I started playing online. So the first games I played online were, I think, was a Quake 3 arena. I, I played some Quake 2, but after that was offline. So in 1998, like late 1998, something around that, I got into playing online and it was just so captivating to me because it provided and that probably says something about my persona it provided a very fair playing ground like nobody would treat you unfairly if you play online there's strict rules and they're always perfectly enforced and i think that's something i care about a lot and that's why i just love playing online so much so i played a lot about quake and of course if you played at the time you knew about jonathan randall fatality he was a guy in the u.s who's yeah, probably very, like, very notable player and personality really right yeah exactly he was actually the very first one to really build his own brand like basically 15 years before other esports people like started doing that in the first place and seeing that people could go out there and do that was incredibly influential to me we didn't really have a lot of streams like people would like quake has always been better than most of the other esports at the times at, at streaming their games there like if you know uh, dj Reed, he he's like an ancient figure and he's still around and uh, i admire that man so much for many things in his history that we can't talk about today but um seeing that and and then having counter-strike on the rise again which came up in basically 1999 which all of my friends played so i eventually switched to counter-strike and seeing how the the coverage and tournament scene of counter-strike developed that was also something that influenced me a lot because i think it was in 2001 where we had the like when clan base was still around which for those who don't know that's basically the American equivalent of what we call ESL now, which had different names at the time. Um, this as is well. the uh, ESL. So this is the esports. Uh, I don't even know what the acronym stands for, but it's like the one of the biggest uh, esports organizations around today. Yeah, yeah. They started out in the late '90s as we called it the German Clan League, Deutsche Clan Liga. Then they turned into the European. I didn't even know what they what it would stand for at the time. I think these days they all just call them ESL. But yeah, they developed into. I, I want to say like the biggest vessel for organizing esports tournaments they recently partnered with dreamhack to to create an even bigger series and yeah they were some of the first ones to to really put that stuff into into the public eye and, and more importantly provide a framework where you could like challenge people online on a ladder or i don't know how would you say that? i think at the time, like I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm talking about ESL because at the time, Clanbase was even more important to me because Clanbase did the what they called the Open Cup and the Euro Cup, mm -hmm. and that reminded me so much about football, right? And football yes. is just another before huge passion magic, of yours. Yeah, before Magic, football was the biggest thing in my life, the, the thing that would make me the happiest in the world, and it still does when I get to play, but I don't always get to play. And when I saw that we had that in Clanbase in like 2001, um, the Euro Cup. The, the first one I watched was Eurocup 3, where Tam, which at the time was the best German clan, still like legendary clan that people don't talk about as much anymore. Um, they had a like 78-0 undefeated run at some point, and they lost in the finals to, I think it was a, well, 
Scandinavian team. They I think they had Swedes and Norway's Norwegians. And that was one of the very first events. It might actually have been the finals of that event was the very first one that I really like not randomly caught, but knew it was coming up. So I actually took time out of my day to watch that. And that was incredibly impressive to me that because at the time people were like, oh yeah, you know how people still somewhat look down on gamers and be like, oh, okay, what, whatever, you're playing your game, that's fine. But seeing that that people would put an organization behind that and, and stream that and, and have an actual audience, like you wouldn't have a live audience, of course, because it was just played at some internet cafe, I would assume. But that, that people like me would take time out of the day not to randomly consume something, but actually look forward to it. That meant to me that, okay, that there's something there, that there's more than just casual entertainment, that there's a real industry that's probably going to blow up at some point in the future. I know you've always been competitive as a, you know, a footballer and then as a gamer, but I am wondering like what leads someone to be competitive in a game. Let's say it's Quake or Counter-Strike. And then to go from that to actually watching top level professionals play, instead of just playing more games on your own, was there some kind of step or some kind of thing you have to jump through to to do that you know it's different obviously for everybody but i'm just curious you know yeah i was curious as well i just wanted to do what the top people in in my quote-unquote oh, so it was kind of doing. like a way to try and observe and emulate would you say like what they're doing yeah like i was competitive but i wasn't like super top level so when i was watching i didn't like take notes and be like, okay, yeah. at this time you have to pick up the red armor and then you, you do this uh -huh. and that. Uh, I just was curious whether the way I played was the way that professionals would play. Because at the time, it, I mean, if you haven't been around back then, for, for those listening, it's not like you would go on YouTube. YouTube didn't exist for another yeah, like five no or six Twitch, years. there was no YouTube, there's none of that. Yeah, so your meta game, quote unquote, was you and it was what you and your friends played. It wasn't even that common to play on public servers. You would, but most of the time when I played, we basically we had like the same server we played on every day, and that you had like your local meta game of what the way people played. So if somebody came in who was really really good, they would destroy you like crazy. And yeah, that's that's just something I was curious about. What do the really really good people do? And is it is it something that's that would blow my mind that I never thought of? Because I mean that. That's a special thing that I guess a lot of people have that you want to be astonished by something. You want to find new ways of thinking about stuff, of solving problems. And that's what you get when you watch a pro play. Yeah, it sounds like you're driven by curiosity, especially at a time when it that information was not readily available. So if we actually extrapolated that to now, 2019, where all that information is available. So what do you think actually makes people want to tune in to watch something like that now. Let's say that this match, historic match, happened today. What would make someone want to tune into it? Other than just like back then, which is like I'm living in a black box and I don't know what's going on outside. I guess people have different reasons for tuning into big esports events now. I think one big one is just casual entertainment, which to me was never sure. that important. Like I would sometimes watch something I don't care about on the side, but probably not for it's much. kind of like, why do we watch TV, right? It's entertainment. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. it's it, Or even if it just gives us something to talk about with your friends the next day. Um, other reasons are like, people, I guess, really enjoy watching intense situations from, from, a, from a position of comfort. Like you sit at home, you can just relax, but you see these two guys like going. You're not it. in the hot seat, right? Yeah, exactly. They go for it for like a million dollars or something, often even more. And for example, to me, that's why I watch um, Dota when they have the international. Sure. 
I have no idea how MOBAs work. Like, I get the general idea. I know you have different lanes and you have different champions. But seeing those guys, and I remember when Evil Genius is one, and let me let me say 2016, they, they had Sunil on. And he's a 16-years-old guy from Pakistan. And he's, like, playing this game for, like, I think at the time the, the prize pool was already, like, way over a million. And that's just exciting to me. That's incredibly exciting to me how, how to see how these these athletes, I want to say, I mean, we rightfully say, say so these days, perform and and work as a team and, yeah, just make it work. It's, it's, on top of that, of course, the production value is amazing. Yes. I, I will sometimes watch eSports shows just because the production value is incredible. Going back to Dota again, when, when they pick the champions and they have the champions basically projected in front of the players and they appear of them in the arena, that's, I'm not even sure how they do that. But they make it work. And maybe to me, it's just like I try, I try to draw inspiration from other esports events or anything like that. And that's another reason why I watch. I'm just curious what kind of effort people can actually justify putting into producing these events. And how these days it very much looks like. Basically, if you watch the Super Bowl and, or if you watch Dota, the international, that's, that's the same without like all the advertisement. I think you touched on some really important points. One is that the reasons you just gave are similar to why people watch traditional sports. Like people want to tune in because of the prize pool, because there's something big at stake. There's also sort of this real drama, right? I mean, it, not sort of, there is this real drama and conflict and stress and tension where you see a people can perform at the highest level under these extremely high stakes. So that is something that I think just humans are naturally drawn to, right? And then the other part, which you touched on, which I really love is just the, you know, it's just sort of, yeah, it's just, it's just like the production values. Cause I, I think as a, as content creators ourselves, we also are fascinated with like how things are done. Right. So at least for me, when I listen to someone else's podcast, like yours, I'm thinking about, I'm asking you questions about yeah. how did you do that? Or how did you do this? And then I would expect that you would also kind of want to go deep into, you know, how, how these things are done. And sometimes they're just done so well that there's no question to ask, but you just have to admire it, right? Yeah, the, the logistics behind making things work, whether it's like a cool effect that you do in a podcast or or even just like how you structure a tournament to make things very smooth. It's fascinating to me because there's like at this point, esports has a pretty long history and people have learned so much from from previous failures. And when I watch top level events now, it's just incredible. And, and I, I want to go there and I don't even want to talk to them about the tournament. I want to do that as well. But I, I literally want to talk to the guy behind the camera and ask him about like how they actually coordinate all of that. I've, I've seen things for like really big esports events where they have the production, what would you call it? Production, whatever, head of production <laughs> standing in a room. And he literally has like 20 screens and he goes like, okay, this one, next, this one. Okay, five, five minutes later. Okay, give me a screen 10. And I've only seen that for like football matches before or, or right. any kind of events. And just tells you about a lot about how big that is. Yeah. So given all that you have seen, because I know that you watch, you know, first person shooter games, you watch uh, Dota. I, I believe we also have a shared love for Street Fighter and fighting games as well. Oh, so I mean, much. these things are very hype. The commentary is top notch. Um, given all that you have absorbed in your in your life, how do you think it magic esports compares to to that are there things that they can potentially improve on just from your perspective yeah i mean we always talked about how magic 
was boring to watch, right? How how the, you either watch it's it, a little bit more like watching chess or something very strategic, right? Yeah, you watch chess, but half the time you don't even know what the pieces do, which made it even more like complicated. And that's why people like you and Shame, uh, and and Wilson come in, right? When you do cardboard live and you give us access to the cards, so you can actually understand what's going on. That was like a huge big thing that I still think is going to transform the way Magic is watched for for many years to come. Uh, I think the problem about Magic. Well, let me start off by, the, by saying the good thing. The good thing is what Wizards did over the past two years has been mostly received very well by the community as well as by general esports audiences. There's a reason that that we have people like, for example, Day9 playing Magic. I guess he, he was getting paid to get into it originally, but these days I think it's his main game. And he genuinely loves the game, right? You can tell that when he streams on Day9 TV. Like He, he enjoys playing... like off-ball yeah. things and interacting with fans. Yeah, and he, like he's always been a magic player and the 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 spellgrounds he did uh, he did that episode way back yeah, with yeah, yeah. Uh, LSV or something. Or if you think about the other people who are involved with him like his brother Nick and and Tasteless who's like the uh, um Atosis, who's basically the the brother uh, the partner in crime for that sure. guy. Those guys also used to play a lot of magic. I know that Atosis actually I think it was also in the late 90s early 2000s. He was at a crossroads. He almost ditched Brute War and would have become like a magic pro. I think he was close to a magic pro too at the time. Right. So these guys, they always love magic, but they didn't produce magic content or like only very occasionally in day nine's case. But now that we have arena and wizards has really stepped up the game with terms of marketing as well. Now we see those guys coming into magic. And that's what I'm saying is, is the good thing that wizards has done by making the game more approachable through arena, but also many other things that they have implemented to, to put magic into the minds of people. Um, I was looking at uh, statistics earlier today about, well, it's only price money, so that's a little bit harder to compare, but in overall price money paid out on Arena and Magic Online together, we're sitting at something like 4.2 million mm -hmm. in basically over like just a year or two, because before that you didn't really get big price money, right? But that already puts us ahead of Street Fighter, which Street Fighter Five that is. Uh, which has also existed during about the same time frame. And Street Fighter V is like a very established esports, even though like the, you know, the fighting game community, they talk about how they are not actually esports. But that, that tells you something about Magic, because I wouldn't think that Magic would have cracked like top 20 esports anytime soon. Before. Would you say that Magic in an es... Uh, sorry, would you say that money in esport builds legitimacy? Mm, or is that too far of a stretch? It eventually does i guess like the most important thing that money does is yeah i guess it, it depends on what you mean by legitimacy uh, if people if sponsors are willing to put that much money into your game over a longer period of time because we've seen games in the past for example like painkiller or, or stuff like that where there were like huge prize pools and then they went away after a year or two because they were pushed really hard by sponsors or in, in painkiller's case like by, by the company who made it but then they went away. But if it's like over a sustained period of time, the amount of money that comes in to me feels more like like an effect of people having a really great game, presenting it really well, but also having the personalities to put on a really good show. That's that's so. So it in itself doesn't really mean anything, but it's like a byproduct of the ecosystem or the flow. Yeah, yeah, and eventually it leads to a point where it also draws in people because I wouldn't watch Dota like the, the international if it was just like a random tournament because like I said I don't really understand the game very well I just like see want to see this super high level thing that's going on and what the money does is 
it allows people to commit even more to the game, right? If, if those guys, they make a really good salary, if they, they make a really decent living, then they can fully commit to the game and, and not be like these, these like it used to be in the past where you basically were like either going to school or you had a job and then on the side you played a little bit of Counter-Strike or whatever. But yeah. on these days, what the money has allowed them is to be fully committed. Mm-hmm. And of course, because they are, there's even more money coming in. So there's like a positive feedback. Yeah, I guess the incentives for the players or the participants are important, right? That it's, it's not so much legitimacy as so much as viability of one's career. Yeah, 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 very much actually. And the, about the part, for example, where I think that the money is required to make it more interesting for people to watch. Um, it might not be the same for everyone, but for me, for example, when I I can't really play casual games of Magic all that much anymore, unless maybe they're for testing. But if I really just sit down and people want to play a match against me, I will probably do. But I've, I always feel like people play differently when there's no money involved. Yeah. So they are more risk fr- friendly. They they are not like scared of taking a line that might be the better line, but that's more risky. So money also makes things much more competitive and puts really puts you to the test psychologically. I know that you're a very intense competitor when you play. I I feel like it's night and day. Like I'm talking to you right now outside of playing Magic and you're very happy-go-lucky, very jovial and, you know, very easygoing, very easy to talk to. But when you're sitting down at the Magic table, I mean, I see that you're just, you're just locked in. I mean, just like all of the MPL competitors or people who are in front of the camera. You don't need a camera. You're just locked in. So I, I can definitely see that uh, for you, right? I've heard that many times. And like the first time I heard it was only like a year or two ago where people told me that before they knew me better on a personal level, like they knew me as a competitor and saw me every now and then they thought I was like this dangerous guy, super into it. And that's not me at all. But when I'm at a tournament, when I sit down, it sounds arrogant but i very much assume from the very moment i sit down that i'm gonna win mm-hmm. like i think in the last five years or something i've never sat down across from anyone and didn't think that I, w- I wasn't gonna win even if the odds are against me like there's always like i don't care about whether you might get to four or three that's just part of the game like I, I, of course i feel sorry for you but i want to win <laughs> and i mean that can happen yeah. and if that happens then i win so there's always like a way for me to win and yeah, I guess that that translates into me being super confident about myself in, in games of magic. How do you think you develop that confidence? Uh, <laughs> okay, that goes that goes probably like a little bit into my personal life, which I don't mind talking about. Yeah, let's um, do it. Um, I think that for a lot of times in my life, like there have been ups and downs and like problems, like. I don't know how much I should get into that, but uh, hey, this man, this is humans of magic. Is as much as you want. Okay, so humans <laughs> of magic that you want the public okay. world to hear about. So humans of magic. Uh, it's the year two thousand and six. I come home from university. I study away from home, and I I stand in front of my house or like my mother's house. Uh, my parents are divorced, and I was living with her at the time, and it's burnt down, and nobody told oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> like nobody told me and at the time she was working for a really creepy company and there was like this guy who owned the company he was like ah, you can come you can sleep at the company it was more like a like a fucked up bar place and i didn't really want to sleep there uh-huh. <laughs> so i was just like wandering around town calling my friends i can I sleep at your place can i sleep that place so yeah i what i want to get to is for a lot of my life and we talked about this personally as well i never really felt that i had very much agency about about my life about like getting things the way i want them to i always felt like 
the things I cared about the most, I have almost no influence on and I'm powerless and I, I can't get there. Whereas in games and in magic, and that goes back to like, the rules are enforced very fairly. Like you put something in and no matter who you are, you get the same thing out. And that's why I felt so confident about playing games because I felt like if I put in the work and if I put in the, the correct, if I approach it with the correct mindset, then success would come to me. And for most of my life, I think I've only really started changing that attitude a couple of years ago. And yeah, for most of my life, I felt like that wasn't true for many aspects. Like there, there was like 20% agency, random, 80% random chance. And getting that to change in my head is, was, was a big thing because <laughs> I remember I talked to, to Felix, Felix Munk from Denmark, who's a really good friend of mine, but whom I met through Magic, whom I don't really see enough anymore these days. By the way, Felix, we really got to go play poker in Copenhagen. You told me to, I should come. <laughs> <laughs> and I talked to him about that. And he once told me, dude, you're such a fucking killer. How do you not like get this done? Like I was talking to him about a problem I had in private. And that just resonates in my head, this thing about like being a quote unquote killer about something, just yes. getting it the way you want it to. Yes. And I'm not saying I'm there, but I, I think I've turned my life around with regards to that quite a bit. Okay. All right. That's, uh, that's really cool. So, I mean, obviously things that happen to you in life affect what you do, everything that you do, whether it's gaming or otherwise. So it sounds like playing competitive games within like a very defined structure, like that's something that really appeals to you because you feel like it's like if you work hard, generally speaking, if you work hard and keep an open mind and develop yourself the right way, like good things will happen in terms of results, right? Yeah, that, that's one of the biggest things um, why I've always loved competitive games from the very start. And I guess that's also why I hated cheating so much. I mean, it's not only yeah, a thing in magic, right? Cheating is like circumventing the things that we just talked about. Exactly, yeah. Like even in, in Counter-Strike, when it was a big thing, it, 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 there was nothing I hated more. I would sometimes sit out matches and operate the, the anti-cheating software, which was called Punkbuster at the time, yeah. just so I could call, call, um, catch somebody who we knew was cheating. Right, yeah. right. Okay, so I would love to talk to you about, I mean, you've got a lot of projects going on, but I think the big draw that I'm seeing right now is something that you're, it's your baby, you're very passionate about it, and that's the Legacy Premier League. So I would love for you to just introduce the Legacy Premier League or LPL to the listener and maybe talk about your vision behind the whole thing. Yeah, the Legacy Premier League is um, a community league played on Magic Online, where we invite a lot of really, really good players, uh, famous personalities. Usually they cover both. Actually, most of our players are really, really good uh, at the game. And then there's me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and we have them play against each other in uh, by a tournament system for significant prizes, I got to say by now. And we live stream that on Twitch or my Twitch channel. You yeah. guys are now sponsored by Wizards of the Coast, right? So yeah. shout out to Wizards. Yeah, Wizards, Wizards of the Coast is sponsoring us. We got Card Hoarder and we got Scott Monroe. Shout out to Scott. He's at GoodBrotherMTG on Magic on, on Twitter. And without those, the league might still exist, but it would be not anywhere close to what you're seeing right now. We're getting so many compliments for the production value, for production quality, production design, and all of that that you see, for example, the pixel art theme that we're using these days that goes back to having these sponsors on and allowing us to do that. Right. And that's what we're doing. We're streaming it on Twitch, played through your magic online. And let me say it has produced some awesome games already thus far this season. This is the fourth season 
um, Mike Danielson at Flusterstorm on Twitter and I, we created it in 2016. And yeah, now we're in our fourth season. And this season it's Anorak Das, whom you probably know from streaming. I think he's at Anzi104 on Twitter and me, we're producing this season. And we're currently in the playoff stage. I'm actually playing tomorrow, so right after my flight lands. I still there you go. You fly back to Germany, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still got to submit my list now that I think about it. What What led you to create the LPL in 2016? So the story of the LPL actually starts in 2015 because the Vintage Super League produced by Randy Bueller, right? That, that was the very first thing that people had there. I think they had eight guys and, and they rented it and played Vintage, which is another eternal format and really cool format, by the way, check it out. So Mike created this fake advertisement poster for the Legacy Mediocre League. So right, very tongue-in-cheek. Exactly, because we all knew that we hadn't the same, didn't have the same star power that these guys. I think they had, they had Bob Maher and well, Randy. Yeah, they had some of the the game's greats all playing like vintage, I guess. Yeah, and that led them to call themselves the Super League, right? But right. since we were just like some random guys streaming on Twitch. Uh, we were the mediocre league, which I found super funny. It, it wasn't like an actual announcement. He just made the poster and we posted it on Twitter and people thought it was real. So fast forward a year and Mike and I actually produced the first season of the Legacy Mediocre League. So it sounds like the reception to the poster was good. Like it's, it was almost like a market survey in a way, like get people to see if people like that idea, want to see it, right? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Like people went crazy about it. And that really showed us that, I mean, we already assumed there might be some interest in that, but people really love Legacy. And, you know, Legacy is one of those formats that has always suffered from not getting as much attention as other formats. So when you produce content in Legacy, you really, you don't have as many people who want that, but the people who do want it, they want it so much. And they're very passionate about it. Very passionate about that. And that's something about Legacy that I also really, really like. When I go to Legacy events, people will compliment for compliment me for the Legacy Premier League and tell me, oh, they watch it every day. Um, well, not, we are not on every day, but they try to catch up on the VODs yeah. every day. Yeah. Or, for example, there, there was a guy from, from Brazil who told me that they are watching it in yeah. a store. Or a guy from Texas told me that their um, store always puts it on on the big screen when, whenever we are playing. And to me, that's that's one of the best things that... that People could tell me that that people care so much about it that goes back to that they actually look forward to it that they plan their day around being able to watch the yeah, show. Part of their life schedule. Yeah, okay. it's not like a random stream because to me there's always like this big difference between treating something as a stream and treating something as a show. Like yeah. a stream is something you pop on the stream, you you just like get in. Hey, play, let's talk. play this deck today and let's play this other deck and see what happens, right? Yeah, exploratory. Exactly, and when you produce a show then it's much more about like being very well aware of providing a continuous stream of content. You can't have too much downtime. Obviously, you got to have downtime for logistical reasons. But once the content restarts, it's got to be da, 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 da. You got you to have content all the time. You can't be like sit, sitting there like for a minute and not talk about anything or leave to catch food, to get some food or something like people do in a stream. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's also part of the appeal of a stream. But it's also something I try to do in my private streams, uh, not the LPL streams, that I really want to treat it as a show and I want to understand what people are here for. And mm -hmm. that's usually well, the gameplay, but also, well, I hope, ho I hope me, I hope people are watching my stream because of me and not despite of me. <laughs> right. Because that is something that is very involved, the, the production value. I mean, we touched on it before when, you know, you're watching other 
events and now you're applying these things to something that you're doing your baby and i think that's something that people don't really get sometimes is that it's like level one is like i'm playing magic like okay i'm streaming or i'm playing magic somewhere in real life or tabletop and then level two would be i'm holding a tournament but then i think level three or above level two is like i'm not only holding a tournament but i'm also trying to make it this sort of programming around it and because I, I feel like the league is in a way like not in a way i mean it is much more involved and complex than just saying i'm streaming a tournament even because in a tournament it's like here's the round let's get these two people in front of the camera but for you guys you have to worry about a lot of other things as well like the scheduling and and you know when is it going to fire so um it's not even so much of a question but i just want to like say that i really appreciate the the almost like the behind the scenes thing like it's really easy for people to just come in and tune in and watch autumn burchette versus emma handy or you know these two good players go at it but people don't often see that there's a lot that goes behind that you know what i mean yeah there's, there's so much that goes behind that right i always say that once the season starts 80 percent of my work has already been done yeah. because the preparation and the scheduling and the production design and even i talked to you about this a couple of days ago deciding which aspects do you want to improve from previous seasons and which new aspects do you want to implement? Yeah. There's only so much time and also money, of course, right. that you that you can invest into, into making that happen. And finding a good balance of that is also, you would think it's just mental work, but it's still work. You, you got to decide. You need somebody to decide that and make that happen. And that's a lot of work as well. So what were some of the early pitfalls of maybe the first or second season of the LPL that that is you know you obviously have learned to conquer i see the broadcast is much more mature and polished now but can you talk about maybe some of the initial growing or learning pains uh i guess most of that stuff would be technical stuff we we used skype for example for a long time and skype doesn't really give you good audio quality so we eventually switched to discord then there were like some issues with discord that we were able to solve this season and yeah it's just i think one of the biggest most important things that we changed is the tournament format because in the very first season we had nine guys which actually was smart because if you play nine people one person always has a week off mm -hmm. but during the first season so we always had like eight people you needed to play on i think we played the first season on wednesday nights as well and that creates scheduling issues even though we the the people we had like really great people they they weren't in the mpl or had any kind of super big commitments so it was a little bit easier but Scheduling MTL history. didn't ex exist back then, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I see your point. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so now we're using a tournament system where we have four groups. So during the first month of the of the tournament, you only got to play one night. And that makes it much easier to, to get people on the show. Because I we talked to like really big names to who actually ended up being on the show, right? Who, who are in the MPL. Sure. And a big thing for them to come on was the time investment, the time commitment. And because of the tournament format where we use a group system followed by playoffs with an upper and a lower bracket, that makes it so much easier. So if, you, if you're ever going to run an online tournament, don't run it as a Swiss tournament. It's almost impossible other, unless you, I guess, want to pre-record matches. But it, it, it's weird, right? If you, if you pre-record matches, you would think people would get the same experience, but it's not. It's, people knew that a match wasn't live. And by the way, in the history of the MPL over four seasons with hundreds of matches played, we only had two matches who were pre-recorded, which I'm still proud of. Mm -hmm. But it just makes a difference. If, if the match is live, and I, I even get messages on Twitter who, where people ask me, oh, is this actually a live production? Yeah, yeah, 
and, and oh, the yeah. matches well. It's yeah, real. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. some of them actually they can't believe that we put out. I mean, there's always more quality you can produce, but I think we already reached a pretty good level of quality, and people sometimes can't believe that this is all live. And yeah. And I think you touched on something very important here is that you have to look at it from the perspective of the participants, because the reason why you guys have such huge names this season, you have like, you know, basically the biggest names in Magic playing in the LPL. You have like Andrea Mangucci, you have Javier Dominguez, you have Autumn Burchette, you have like MPL members. You also have people who are just like really, really good at Magic in general. Like you have someone like Brian Gottlieb who... Arena Decklist podcast, he, he's like good in every format and he's definitely showing it in the LPL. But uh, I digress. Like you have you, you thought very consciously about how to make their schedules work, because the number one reason a Magic player turns down an invite to something like this is like it's too much time. Yeah, exactly. Right. You, you got to justify it. And also, I, I never asked the players, but having a, a significant prize pool helps. And it's not like Though, oh, those guys are greedy, right? But there's only so many hours in a day. And exactly. for a lot of the people playing, that's actually their livelihood. And I can't expect somebody to... I wouldn't ask you to take, like, I don't know, four hours of work just to play in something for free. That, that wouldn't make sense. Right. I mean, you'd maybe do it as a courtesy thing, but certainly not over, over yeah. several months. It's like a combination of convenience plus... Uh, or convenience slash uh, scheduling availability plus uh, stakes, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's funny that you mentioned that... Um, a big thing is making it about the players because I always feel a little bit guilty towards the players because I think I am putting a lot of emphasis of making it, on making it about the viewers, about the audience, about mm -hmm. giving them a really good experience. I remember, for example, when we started doing open deck lists and I think we started last season with the open deck lists, which, by the way, is an amazing concept. We should have it everywhere. People and play players were very hesitant towards that and they didn't really like it and i just guess put my foot down because you were thinking about it from a viewer yeah yeah ex exactly like how are we gonna like have cardboard life or anything without open deck lists or like it it would create this weird thing where you wouldn't know the deck list for the first game and but after the first match and if you met later on you would know it again it, it was just like Let's just cut all of the doubt. Let's have open deck lists and have a really good experience for the audience. And that's the most important thing to me. It also creates this sort of anticipation slash discussion, right? Because when viewers know about the deck list in, in advance, that helps you promote the, like, what's going to actually happen live. And people will talk about, like, okay, I think this player is favored against this player. Not just because of who they are, like the name, but actually what they're playing, right? Yeah, that, 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 that goes back to, I want people to anticipate the show. Yes. I don't want them to randomly tune in and be like, oh, it's, this guy's an event. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's, that's a big part of that because you, you think about, oh my God, this person's going to play my favorite deck. Or I never thought this person would play that deck. And that just adds to the story. I think it's good that you're thinking about the LPL in terms of like what's in it for the, the viewers, in terms of the, the excitement, the anticipation. So, how do you balance that versus, you know, what's in it for the players? Like, you touched on it, but I mean, to me, it's sort of like a spectrum. I don't know if it's as scientific as that, but like, how do you balance that? You, you want to know what the biggest concession I made um, due to player inputs to the players sure. was? We changed the name from the Legacy Mediocre League to the Legacy <laughs> Premier League. <laughs> 
Yeah. I, I noticed that change. And, you know, like, if you want to be the best, you got you to gotta name yourself as the best, right? Yeah, like you mentioned, it originally was tongue-in-cheek. And I wouldn't be opposed to still having that name these days. But, yeah, Legacy Premier League is probably more appropriate. And that went back to player feedback when I was asked to maybe come up with a different name. I think it turned out to be a good change because if the quality is, if the product is good, people will tune in. But you want to make sure that that people want to sign up for it, right? Yeah, true. And when we did the first season, I, I don't think we anticipated or even thought about like having future seasons. But seeing how well it was received and how it filled that gap, that void that was there, because there, there were like the Legacy Vintage League, uh, the Legacy Vintage League, the, the Vintage Super, Super League. League, and I think they had the Modern League and, and all kinds of leagues. But no legacy league so we were like okay let's do a second season let's do a third season and now we're in the fourth season and people really like it i get the more seasons we do the more people ask me between seasons when the next season's gonna come up right and for all the previous seasons whenever we finished them and they would usually last for like three months i was like okay i'm never gonna do that again <laughs> <laughs> and here we are here we are yeah it's just the uh, the time zones don't really work out for me very well. We we used to have it like at 11 p.m. my time. And now with being more conscious of well, American audiences, we moved it to 6 p.m., which makes it easier. Or 6 p.m. East Coast time, yeah. which is my midnights, which makes it easier for them to watch, but even harder and for me to do And then the people on the West Coast can just watch it at work or something, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they should. They should at least. They should, um, yeah. And we get some very committed Europeans. And I think you told me that people here in China even watch it. They do. In fact, uh, they, they actually rebroadcast the, the Twitch stream into some of the Chinese streaming platforms and because they love it so much. And, you know, I, I try to do my part, too, about promoting it and just telling people about it. But, yeah, we do have quite a bit of people watching it here in China. Have you seen it uh, on, on the big screen in LGS? We got to start doing that. I haven't been at an LGS uh, when that's happened, but I know LGSs do show stuff. So I, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I definitely would believe that to be happening. Actually, yes. it's six in the morning for you. Yes, so you probably won't yeah. see it live. On the- Most Magic players are not very good at getting up at six in the morning. I yeah. will I will concede. <laughs> but yeah, I, I love to hear that. Like to, to actually get an international audience and international reach for, for something I produce. I'm pr- still probably not fully comprehending um, what kind of reach the product quote-unquote actually has yeah and every time I, I hear about these things it's just so amazing to me it actually makes me want to do more season again also the reach of the players because to put it very nicely like legacy is not a format that wizards pays a ton of attention to you know when they're designing new cards or things like that they're thinking about some of the other formats like standard limited and modern but it's been really interesting getting feedback from friends you know the they had no idea that this person played legacy and I have to tell them, yes, they not only play Legacy, but Autumn actually plays Legacy super well. And they're really into it. And they're really good high-level players. And you're seeing that every week with some of the, the plays they're making. Like, it's it's very, very... It's like, if you're good at Magic, you have to be good at Legacy. Like, you have to be good at all the formats. They don't get to play it a lot because they don't have a Legacy MC. You know, that's me getting on a soapbox now. But... Uh, <laughs> They're good magic players are good magic players and you're seeing some high level play from 
members of the NPL and others as well. Yeah, and they're super passionate about it, right? If yeah. you, like, if you watch Andreas' Twitter or read Andreas' Twitter, he recently skipped preparing for the NPL just because he <laughs> wanted to play a local legacy event. Yes. <laughs> or, or Javier, he, he's actually the creator of one of the oldest legendary decks in Legacy, uh, Cephalid Breakfast, which I didn't even know about That's at the right. time when, when he yeah. entered the last season, he actually played that deck. And, and those... Brian, Brian Gottlieb, I think, did something with Frexian Devourer and like, you oh, know... Oh, that was him? Yeah, uh, he was. I mean, I don't. I don't think he claims full credit for it because no one really invents a yeah, deck, yeah. you know. But he was very instrumental in those deck lists. And then you also had people like Caleb, who Caleb Durward, who obviously, you know, did some great things with Legacy, with Survival and Painters. So it's like these people have like a very rich connection to Legacy that people don't often know. You know what I mean? Yeah, because they if they just know them for basically their playing their life or so, playing yeah. <laughs> I don't know like playing on the MCs right yeah but it's really nice to give them an outlet to to basically produce their their legacy stuff uh, to or rather to let them play legacy in a high level competitive setting which they otherwise don't really get to do that much or we don't get to see them I guess for sure and let's talk about the commentators a little bit too because that's really a big part of the lifeblood of the LPL. I've been seeing some incredible commentary work, really, like some really, 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 like I would compare this to anything done at the highest levels of magic. So maybe tell me a little bit about the commentators and how, you know, how that team came to be assembled. Well, we, I want to say commentary every season is the one single aspect I want to improve the most. And I think we succeed in improving it a lot and we've gotten to a level especially in this season where for the first time i would say i'm actually really happy with it there's many things that go into that for example the the audio quality it's it's only a recent thing for magic streamers really that they would actually step up the game with regards to audio quality and that's the one thing i'm always such a pain in the ass for okay everyone involved yeah and i know for your podcast as well right audio quality is very important yeah yeah but you <laughs> The thing is, like, these commentators, com commentators, they come on voluntarily. Yes. So I can't tell them, hey, maybe we can fix this thing, yeah. or maybe we can fix that. I cannot expect somebody who's devoting his own, his or their own time to being on our show to actually buy a proper microphone. Yeah. I can give them tips how to, like, configure that. For example, a, a great example for me is Travis Yu. You know, Travis yeah. is a very, very accomplished... Like, he made top eight and two Legacy GPs, one, one of them. He's a very smart guy. But in the past, this audio quality, I didn't really like it very much when I watched the stream. So Travis actually went ahead. He bought a he bought a headset, and Min of Min Max Block helped him a lot with like working on his microphone. Yeah. And now he's got really really he good. He stepped audio up quality. his audio game. He stepped it very much up, and that that's something I really appreciated when commentators like make that kind of commitment on top of just being available for our show, and that's just like the technical aspect. But when it comes to running the show, you I mean, there's always this thing about like color commentary and and the how do you call the other person? The play by play. The play by play, exactly. Yes, you always have to have kind of a, a duo or a tandem, right? Yeah, and we don't really like specify those roles because people like flow between them. But you you realize that some people work better with others. There's there's examples when we when we pair people who are like super analytical about everything, you would have a little bit more downtime and you learn from that, right? From previous seasons. So you try to schedule them in different ways. And yeah, and then there's new people coming in, for example, like Emma this season. Emma, I mean, Emma Handy, right? Emma Handy, yeah. yeah. One of the best commentators, really. Yeah, she does commentary for SEG and also runs a really great stream. 
And when we had her on for the first time, it was like, wow, this person really gets what I want, right? Yeah. She's like, when I say I want that, like I'm not even somebody who, who, who could deliver it anywhere close to, to her level. And she just goes like, bam, 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 bam. And yeah. she exactly knows how, how she's always on. Like the energy is always there too. Yeah. And I talked to her about that, how much I appreciate that. And she really says, she also knows that she's supposed to put on a show, right? Mm-hmm. And not just like hang out with your friends in your living room and be like, oh yeah, that's a good play. <laughs> <laughs> like you do in front of a TV, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, that also has its appeal. And I guess I could see that every once right. in a while. But people being aware of this entire thing, being more than just like a hangout, but an actual show, that makes it, I think, very different. And I talked to commentators about that. And I mean, Tenon Grace, for example, is another great example. We had Tenon on the other the other week. And he's also someone who... He's who, always on, too. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that that's what I want to see. I want to improve it even more and even further. But you always have to be careful with like how much you push because commentators are still devoting that. Do you, you know. give the commentators feedback? I mean, obviously a big part of it is just who they are intrinsically. Like someone like Tenon or Emma is just going to knock it out of the park every time because that's just something that they do really well. But do you try to give the commentators constructive input on, on things that you observe? Yeah, yeah. So for example, when there's like super obvious technical stuff, like somebody has a mic too close to their mouth and they breathe right. into it. That, that's something that's very easily changed. Um, when when I feel they're uncomfortable, we try to talk about why they're uncomfortable, but sometimes it's just a lack of experience. And I, I feel sorry. Oh, what, what kind of discomfort do they run into? Um, just an example. I think the biggest discomfort that I notice in people who are not comfortable is that they feel like they're under pressure to say something smart when they're actually not. Okay. Most commentators don't say very smart things, especially not when commentating matching online games. Because because of the that goes back into logistics that I also had to understand after a couple of seasons why is commentary so hard on Magic Online? Or at least harder than in paper, I feel. And that's because of the lack of shuffling. There's no dead time. There's no dead time. Like if 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 you watch legacy matches, like turn one shuffle, turn two yeah. shuffle, shuffle, turn three <laughs> shuffle, shuffle, yeah. ponder shuffle, like it gives you so much time to explore. Because especially in legacy, the very first two turns, sometimes the third turn as well, is incredibly critical, and you want to say so much about that. Yeah. But you have to become aware that you can't when you're commentating on Magic Online games. You can talk about very general things, but. You cannot go into detail, especially not with regards to we could have taken this line or that line. You can't explore that. I mean, it's already hard to do that in paper, but on Magic Online, even less so. So people feel like that their time frame where they have to say something is even shorter and it has to be smart when it actually has to be not. You're you're there to basically, I mean, I probably shouldn't say that, but you're there for, I think, 50% just to say something for people to... You know, engage them to 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 make them feel like they're together there with you right. and watching that to be right. your friend almost. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just a silent stream, right? Because yeah, but it's it's so hard. I, I definitely feel that pressure myself too. Like not commentating in LPL, but it's like, how do I sound smart? Like how do I how do I justify my existence as a commentator? <laughs> right? Because I'm there. I'm a talking head. Like I'm there. You see me. Shouldn't I say something? Right? Yeah. And the easiest thing to say is to really just announce what's going on and and put yourself maybe in the shoes of the opponent when when like a big card comes up that's problematic for you you can talk about why that card is a problem for you right now if you have time you can even talk about how to solve the problem that you're currently in but it already helps um the audience like the, the really super committed legacy players 
they probably see much more than the commentators because whenever you do commentary, you can't nearly focus as much on what's going on as, as anyone watching, which creates this phenomenon um, where the chat is always like critical of commentators yes. because some commentator didn't see That can see some give line. them pressure too. Yeah, and you really have to develop a thick skin and realize that you're probably smarter than the person in chat pointing out something super obvious even though you got it wrong. But if you put that person into the commentary seat, they would do horribly probably. Yeah. Because they would try to sound smart all the time and not say anything, and, and that wouldn't work. And that's something that, like, I think good commentators all know that they are not the mistakes they sometimes make on commentary, like the technical mistakes, but they are the, the atmosphere and the feeling that they give to the audience. And that's the most important thing. Yeah, for sure. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit too about your collaboration with your co host, Anurag Das. So, What's it been like working with Anurag? Can you describe? I mean, let's let's make this as honest as possible. You're laughing already, but let's let's talk about what it's like to work with Anurag. That you're you're allowed to say. The, I I, I think I'm allowed to say anything. It's quite. That's right. It's it's a bit wild. Like if I Anurag knows this, right? If if Is like we, contain chaos or something or what? Yeah, that's actually a pretty good way to describe it. Um, so we we actually started talking about doing RPL in May, and we ended up launching it in October. So May was this is the first season for him, right? The first season for him is well, he was involved in the last season, but more like a passive person who who, who was like Did the commentary, some of that. Yeah, he was actually involved with the organization, but more like he was picking up on a lot of things we were doing, and yeah. So we started first talk, talk, started talking about it in May, and then it became really concrete in like July. I want to say. Tell me why you thought he was a good fit for you know what you guys are trying to do. Mm, because he was pushing me really hard he really wanted to make it happen okay like i didn't think about it in may and i also like i started thinking about it in july but so ever he's, a, he's a man with a plan yeah he really wanted this to happen like very very like i also really wanted to happen but i always remember how much stress it is for me and <laughs> well at that time you're still thinking never again right um, close yeah. <laughs> the ice was breaking and yeah so when we started our, our first rehearsals of everything, I thought he would have it figured out by now. And he didn't have anything at the point. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think I can say that, Anurag. I hope you don't mind. But basically, um, I was scared that it might not work out at yeah. all. Yeah. Because of, um, well, preparation. And as I came in, I was like, okay, let, let's do the entire show. Let's do a complete rehearsal. And yeah, okay, let's see. So how do we, how do we actually capture the hands? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> all right we're here now what <laughs> yeah uh but yeah you you gotta give credit to anorak he really really made it work like i told him um i'm gonna trust you that you like i have to trust you that you're gonna make this work because at some point you have to let go right you you can't be like okay show me your work every day or show me show me you're doing this okay I'm, i think like with this level of commitment that you've shown over the last couple of months i'm sure you're gonna make it work and you're gonna make it work very very well and he did he made it work really well. Like when you see the season, um, we're getting a lot of compliments once again on, on production quality. That's like all him. Like maybe some some of the stuff that that's me, but the actual show that people watch on on the match days, that's like Anurag streaming and coordinating all of that. Right. I, I saw that firsthand last week when you know you were here in Beijing and you know he was having to do a lot of stuff and like I saw you know the behind the scenes like he's the one doing the discord calls together getting people like get, writing them the notes like almost like a teleprompter so they yeah. know the commentators know to refer to things like he seems very involved actively in everything yeah the teleprompter technology that's actually something 
that that Anurag uh, brought in, and I like that so much. We 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 actually have ways to display text for our commentators to see on screen. He puts up really... a notepad or something. And oh no, you you chair. take away all the magic. I wanted to do something <laughs> smart. No, I want to. I'm trying to deconstruct it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So we we put on a notepad and where he types that only is visible to our commentators, and that way we can actually give them like live feedback without actually talking to them, which would disrupt them a little bit more. And yeah, that that works really well. And yeah, credit where credit is due. Um, he had to fly to to DC on short notice. He's based in San Diego, mm-hmm. and we had a, a match planned for that day. So what Anurag did is he took his entire equipment because he had to go there for work, right? He took all of his equipment. He flew to DC. He bought two more monitors because he actually couldn't bring like one or two. He could only take like one or two on the plane. Yeah, and he streamed that week. I think it was the second or the third week from his hotel room. Yeah, there, there's a there's a famous picture on his on his Twitter where there's even like an ironing board that he used to, to put one more monitor on. It was and in the hotel room, right? It was from a hotel room. We called it the DC studio just to make it sound bigger than it was. But that yeah. is super dedicated. Like that's not something you can teach somebody. Like either you have to be passionate enough to just go for it, or you don't, right? Yeah, and like I was thinking, maybe we have to skip that week, or maybe we have to hire somebody else, or maybe I have to do it and like like learn the ins and out of that short notice. Uh, but yeah, made that's, it work. And that's amazing. That's incredibly impressive to me still. How would you see the future of the league going forward? Like, what are you guys are? What are you guys thinking? I mean, obviously this season is not over yet, but you must be thinking about the horizon and potentially doing another one. What's your vision for the future? Mm. <laughs> Julian laughs nervously. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, there, there's always more things I want to implement and I have to figure out how to do it because, for example, this season, I wanted to have an open bracket where people could actually play their way into the MPL. And to, oh, oh, that, that would be the next thing, right? The, the winner <laughs> that of the is MPL a very is... special collaboration of Wizards. Uh, yeah, this is yeah. going to be a PTQ, actually. Yeah, let's make it a PTQ. No, seriously, like I want everyone to at least have a crack on being in the MPL because another big thing that we haven't talked about yet is to actually pick the people who are going to play in it yeah and that's not always easy because there's well, you always guys gonna... you, you guys hit a home run with that this season so I, I mean yeah but there's also people who want to play who ended up who end up not playing right and that i feel sorry especially if they've played in previous seasons but you like i said you gotta balance balance that if you have somebody like well andrea played in the previous season but if you have like names like autumn or emma mm-hmm. and they could be in once again, that goes back to me thinking probably a little bit more about the audience yeah. because I know that the audience would, especially if we had gotten to a point where you could have seen Emma versus Autumn or something, they would have been like amazing, yeah. right? And if you can have that, in a certain way, that's also a reward for Emma and Autumn, right? Because they put so much more time and effort into building their brand and they get rewarded. But at the same time, I feel sorry for the people I left out this season or on previous seasons or maybe will leave out in future seasons. But that's just something that I think people feel bad about when they shouldn't because that's just the way content creation works. Like you you don't feel bad about when you you put on a video on YouTube and it only gets like X number of viewers, which you Mm -hmm. think is underwhelming. Well, you try again, right? You you just keep going, you keep growing. You keep tinkering. Yeah. And yeah, and with regards to that, I still wanted to open it somewhat up to the public. But that's an actual logistical nightmare. I actually had a plan for the season. I really had like very, very... You mean like running an invitation or something? Yeah, like an open bracket, right? You, you could sign up for and then we get the top two finishers into the into the LPL. But making that work is 
a lot of work. I still want to have that in the future to a certain degree, but I'm not sure how we're going to do that. But that's that would be like part of my vision for the league. I see. Yeah. So basically like a feeder system or invitational system. Are, are there other things as well that you think you want to evolve with the league? I want to make it bigger. <laughs> I want to get more viewers. <laughs> I want to I want to show it to even more people. And there's like many, many smaller aspects. Like I want to do what they do in the Pro Tour, right? Where they have pre-game interviews with the players. Like, how do you feel about your match? Oh, they have the segments. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Or even post-game interviews. Um, maybe even have something like an analyst... Desk. <laughs> the guys who know a lot about another like, another desk. The guys who actually have time to say the smart stuff that the commentators couldn't say. Ah, okay, okay. Analysis desk. Yeah, something like that. Where so that would actually allow us to cut down on the downtime, right? Because right now between the matches we have between five and ten minutes of downtime. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we if we put on a panel of like four legacy experts or I guess legacy experts these days is not a very nice word. It's like like anyway, you get what I mean. Yes. And we get those people. And they talk about what we just saw, maybe what's coming up as well. And that actually allows you to bridge the gap and, and make the show even more engaging and more entertaining because you wouldn't have the downtime. Because, for example, if you if you look at SCG, people always complain about, for example, when there's 10-minute downtime on SCG or even more if between rounds because they're actually bound by the Swiss system, which we are not, which is nice. And they put in a lot of effort where they either show like pre-recorded games or these these what's it called time 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 walk time walk matches yeah and something like that and the general idea behind that is decrease downtime decrease downtime make it more engaging let people be like on all the time and that's something i would love to do with rpl i just feel that we are already approaching technical limitations like with regards to what just Anurag and I can do. Like Anurag, I think he's got like four screens going on and then I'm, I'm working on like three screens at home and I think I need even one more to, just to, to do it justice. So it would be so much easier, I guess, if, if we were based in the same place. Maybe we should move to San Diego. Yeah. It's nice there. <laughs> it is very nice there from what I hear. So it, it sounds like to really get to the true vision, you would have to co-locate or, and also just sort of be build the size of the team, right? Because there's only so much that a two-person team can do. And I mean, it's I think it's more than two people at this point, but scaling the team would be a challenge. Yeah, and if you think about that, at that point, you also got to wonder, is it worth it with regards to running something like that once a year? Because if you put in that much effort, you probably want to do it like twice Reusability, a year. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... On top of that, and I mean, that's, I mean, let me be honest with you. There's only so many people we can really reach with this. And you you eventually hit a hard cap, right? Yeah. Because it's just legacy, right? But we, we love legacy very much. And we want to, to, that's the idea, right? We want to give it exposure. We want to get people to watch this amazing format. But you also got to balance it with how much you commit. Because to me, it's always been an issue ever since I started creating content that I would commit too much and my private life would suffer. Not even like with regards to stuff like relationships or anything, like even just like my personal health or like my, my feeling feeling exhausted. Because you, you still got to remember, right? I, I, I got a, well, not exactly nine to five job, but something like that, uh, setting safaris. Yeah. Uh, sometimes even more than nine to five. And I wonder what the cap would be what would be like reasonable to do because i want to involve myself with producing not only like tournaments but actually like esports content because i care so much about that stuff but there's there's 
certain limitations that still exist not only to magic but also within magic yeah can you talk a bit about maybe what the future for you holds like beyond just the lpl but what are things that are coming up for you on the horizon so i'm like in the, in the short term it's gonna be gp bologna that okay. i'm gonna go to yes so just to play the first legacy gp in europe in quite a while and but on the grander scale of things there's two things that I'm passionate about right now, and that's one of them is esports. And we talked about this, right? I, I would love to either work in esports or do something even more with my current job. Like what I like about my current job is that we're selling an amazing product, but I wanna make that a bigger thing. Like I not only wanna sell like our hotel and safaris, I wanna make it a big not a big business, but but something that's much more than just focused on these two things. I want to sell like all of East Africa. I want to I want to give people much better experiences, and we have the team to make that work. Right. But at the same time, I always feel like my actual, real, true calling—the thing that I care about the most—is getting involved with esports. And more than ever, at any time before in my life, I feel like I have the freedom to do whatever I want, to either move wherever I want, to work almost whichever job I want as long as it's like financially sustainable I guess and that's something I think about a lot especially these days like when I come to a big city like Beijing right it, it gives it's incredibly inspiring when I talk to you when we discuss stuff like that and I always feel like I don't want to be put in a position where in x years I will look back at today and be like Julian you really missed the moment to yeah. to do what you care about and like, for example, my best friend sometimes asks me, what would you do if money was never a concern in your life, if you had all the money in the world? And it always goes back to me to something esports related. I would either, like, found an esports team. That's what I said in the past. I think these days I would rather, like, found or do something with an esports organization, like, tournament-wise. And that's what I really, truly, deeply care about because I so much believe. And, I mean, at this point, it's not even, like, a naive or stupid belief it's actually backed up by numbers and i always thought it was going to be like that that the esports industry is going to grow to a point where it might only be second to football slash soccer in the right. world in terms of popularity yeah we're definitely seeing that happen so you know you obviously believe very strongly in the future of esports and want to be and i really i really appreciate your answer because that's a very honest answer because a lot of times like myself included like we're always trying to figure out what we want to do with our lives and it's not always so easy like for us to just say, yeah, let's just pack up our bags and, and do this because it's always an intersection of opportunity and luck and, you know, where we are in our lives and who we happen to talk to. So um, it's it's not easy, but I, I do hope that you can you can find your way, what, whatever way that you would like to go. Oh. Um, the one thing I would offer is just like, don't think of it in terms of regrets, right? I know you're saying when you're 70 or something, you don't want to be regret you don't want to be regretful. You don't want to regret that you didn't take some kind of thing. But to me, life is not really about regrets. It's just about doing something. And then if you do whatever it is, just be committed to it. Right. And, and, and try to figure out what that is. Like, you know, if you're really passionate about uh, growing the safari business and it sounds like you are, yeah, try to make it as big as possible and try to give yourself a window to say like, maybe in the next three to five years, let's just make this thing as big as possible. If you really care about the LPL, let's just say in the next two years, let's try to see how far we can get with it and just sort of go for it, right? But I think if you live in a mindset of, uh, I don't know if I want to do A or B, it's not as good as just saying, let me commit to A or let me commit to B. And if it doesn't work out, you always have the other one, you know? Mm -hmm. 
yeah. And easier said than done. Of yeah, course. of course. I guess there's two ways of looking at it, right? If, when you have decisions, and I was guilty of this a lot of times in the past, I would look at it as deciding against something and not for something else, right? So you, you just like not make a decision. You just sit there and have both options available because you were scared of excluding something by committing to something else. So you ended up committing to neither. And that's something that is really hard to learn, but I think I'm pretty, pretty good at eventually making that decision. And to be fair, it is a version of against because everything is against your personal time and your own time investment. So yeah, I mean, that's anyway, I think it was a really, it's a really honest answer. I, I like that. Along these lines, how do you think magic is going to evolve in relation to esports? So right now, it seems to be growing, growing pretty well. Not as much as as it used to be, like over the last two years. But I like that it's like an, a proper established esports now, as at least Arena, right, and Magic Online, and so and so. But mm-hmm. I think it's gonna grow, but there's some inherent limitations to the way the game is played that doesn't make it as great of an esport for watchers. Like for players very much. Like most people who play Magic would say that's the best game in the world and it might actually be true. I don't know. But I like the the exposure tomorrow to enough games to make that decision. But it's an amazing game for players. But for the audience, I thought about this a lot and I think the biggest problem for making magic even more approachable is that it's incredibly incredibly hard to tell who's ahead mm-hmm. when you watch magic. It's super hard to tell. If you come into a game of magic, yeah, there could be like three Tamagolfs facing down an empty board, okay. But a lot of times because people and the and don't even want to say like a casual audience, because casual, you know, in magic is always like has this yeah, yeah, but but the casual audience is really just the audience that, that watches your game while they're eating breakfast or something. I don't know. For them, it's so hard to tell. And that makes it a little bit less engaging because they don't really get to feel the big swings that are coming in, the, the stakes that are involved because it feels a little bit more, okay, this guy could win, that guy could win. And I think unless Wizards inherently changes something about the way the game's played or the way the game is presented, because we don't really have a good magic. They had the, the advantage bar, right? Which yes. helps, but it doesn't still doesn't really tell you all that much. Then there's going to be limitations. And right now, the way we are fixing that is through commentary. Mm-hmm. So commentators are really trying to give you a sense of the current, how, how tense the game is, right? Yes. Is, is this like a game that could like swing either way, or is this like more of a phase where nothing is going on, where people are preparing? And I think almost all other esports have a way to give you that kind of feeling. For example, for me, when I watch when I watch Dota, they, they have that small thing at the top and where, where it shows you, I, don't, I think, how much gold you got or how many kills you got. And you can also see on the map itself because how far they've pushed back. and, and it's, sure. or, or stuff like StarCraft, for example. StarCraft is also one of those games that's a little bit less approachable for a casual audience, but they have the, the supply numbers. You, you know how you can like have up to 200 units worth of food or supply in the game and they also really really will teach you about who's ahead or the number of bases that you can see on the map and magic like life totals don't matter all that much in magic really i mean they matter a little bit more in standard but even standard they don't matter so as much as to make it an actual metric so having some easier to digest visual indicators would 
that that go beyond the advantage bar like it's not just a binary like this player is ahead but also some some deeper representation of that right yeah yeah that that would be incredibly important if wizards or any entity involved with the game could come up with something that would provide a way for audience to understand the situation on the board without actually knowing too much about the cards or anything just like to give them a feeling to be involved in, in the the heat of the moment then yeah that would be incredible for the game yeah wow i mean yeah i mean that's that's definitely something big that we'll have to all figure out maybe maybe somebody smart out there or viewers can even try to figure out how to how to make that work yeah and that's interesting to me because you know how people are, are often like oh i know it all i know this is the big problem this is the big failure of wizards they should do it like that i actually find that boring because if you thought about that then probably a lot of other people thought about that well it's the whole thing about coming to the table with not the problem but the solution right yeah, yeah, exactly right. And and when when I have a problem, easy and, to complain and, about something, but what, yeah. what can we constructively do about it? Yeah, and and what I mean by that is basically when when I'm aware of the problem, but I have no idea about about the solution, then that's actually super interesting. Yes, because then there's actually new stuff to be explored, and maybe a lot of other people didn't think about that. And maybe if you're listening to this, if you have a good idea, like even if you think it sounds stupid, I guess the best ideas are born out of stupid thoughts at first. Yeah, or they have to be refined and discussed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So, Julian, what, where can people find you online? And you know, just just this is going to be plug time. Like, what 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 other things are? What are all the things you're involved in? How can they find you? Uh, the easiest would be on Twitter.com/slash/it'sJulian23. Uh, if you want to hit me, uh, if you want to watch me on, on Twitch, of course, that's Twitch TV slash It's Julian. You can also visit my website, It's Julian.com, where I basically post all of my content. There's going to be the VODs of the Alexi Premier League. There's the Everyday Channel podcast, my writing. Like, there's going to be writing about my trip to Beijing um, here for in a couple of weeks, I think. So those would be the best ways to to get hold of me. Awesome. So Julian, as always, it's been a pleasure talking to you today and i wish you all the best and have a safe trip back to the homeland thank you for having me on james and that's it for this episode of humans and magic if you've enjoyed this episode please leave us a rating on soundcloud or apple podcasts and if you really enjoy this podcast and want to explore more please pick up the Humans and Magic book out now on Amazon for paperback and Kindle. All right, we'll see you next time.